Let's think base, shall we? And who better to do that than the author of the well-known book, Think base, Alan Downey himself. Since the second edition was just released, the timing couldn't be better. Alan is a professor at Olin College and the author of books related to software and data science, including ThinkPython, ThinkBase, and ThinkComplexity. His blog, probably overthinking it, features articles on Bayesian probability and statistics. He holds a PhD from UC Berkeley and bachelor's and master's degrees from MIT. In this special episode, Alan and I talked about his background, how he came to the stats and teaching worlds, and why he wanted to write this book in the first place. He'll tell us who this book is written for, what's new in the second edition, and which mistakes his students most commonly make when starting to learn Bayesian stats. We also talked about some types of models, their usefulness, their weaknesses, but I'll let you discover that now. For another good news, five patrons of the show will get ThinkBase for free. To qualify, you just need to go to the form I link to in the LearnBase Stats Slack channel or the Patreon page and enter your email address. That's it. After a week or so, Alain and I will choose the five winners at random who will receive the book for free. If you're not a patron yet, well, make sure to check out patreon.com slash stats if you don't want to miss out on these goodies. And, well, even if you're not a patron, I love you, dear listeners, so you all get a discount with the promo code I put in the show notes when you go buy the book on O'Reilly's website. All the links and info are in the show notes. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 41, recorded May 27, 2021. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the projects, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alexandra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbayesstats.com. That's learnbayesstats.com. Do you want to support the podcast and unlock exclusive Bayesian swag at the same time? Then you can visit my Patreon page at patreon.com slash learnbayesstats. Starting at 3 euros, you can get various benefits like the private MBS Slack channel, early access to special episodes, selecting questions for episodes, or even coming on the show. You'll get more details at patreon.com slash learnbayesstats. Thanks a lot, folks. I'm very grateful for any support you can bring. Let me show you how to be a good busy and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen, maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming how would i know unless i'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo controlled science like i'm richard Feynman. hello my Bayesian friends how are you doing a quick note to thank my brand new supporters on patreon especially those in the full poster tier or higher this time i'm speaking of the wonderful andrew moskowitz john johnson and hector munoz thanks a lot guys it is a tremendous help to the show I also want to thank Henry for his 5-star rating of LBS on Podchaser, as well as his review. He wrote, Excellent and motivating podcast for people interested in patient statistics. Compliments studying patient methods nicely and discusses the state-of-the-art developments of the field. Thank you very much, Henry. This helps other people discover the show. And if you want to take a few minutes to leave a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast app or Podchaser, I'd greatly appreciate it. And who knows, maybe it will be your review that I'll read in the next episode. 
Okay, now let's think base with Alan Downey. Alan Downey, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show for this special episode. And personally, I'm glad to get to meet you and interview you because like ThinkBase was one of the first resources I picked up when learning Bayesian stats a few years ago. So that's great to have you in front of me, although through a screen. <laughs> but actually, you're there, of course, to talk, among other things, about the second edition of ThinkBase. But I always like to start with the guest background. So what's yours? How did you come to the stats and teaching world? Right. Well, I came through, I guess, the computer science door into data science. That was my PhD in computer science. And I've been teaching at colleges ever since. I started out at Colby College up in Maine. And now I'm at Olin College, which is an engineering school just outside of Boston. That's nice. And you first started by computer science, as you say, but... Did you then get to the stats world from the beginning or like, how did that happen? Because now you're like thing base, for instance, I think we can mainly characterize that as a stats book. So how come? I mean, you could have written computer science book instead. Well, I started out, the research that I did was a lot of measurement and modeling coming from computer systems and from networks. So I was working with data, I was doing data visualization, But my, my background was classical statistics. I had kind of the traditional statistical inference and then came to Bayesian statistics later and then machine learning even later than that. So maybe not the usual path for a computer scientist. Yeah, I see what you mean. Okay, that's fun to see how you came to that. And did you also teach from the beginning or is it something you picked up later? I was teaching, yeah like computer science. So a lot of you know software engineering and Python programming. The statistics came later because I was at Olin College and we had a statistics requirement for engineers, but we were teaching a really mathematical statistics class and it wasn't great. The students didn't really enjoy it a lot and it's not clear how it was really practical for engineering. And at the same time, I was doing all of this work that was practical engineering work using statistics. So I proposed, you know, maybe we don't need the math faculty to teach all of the statistics. Maybe I could teach a class. So I started that taking a more computational approach. And that's actually, that's what became Think Stats, which was the first book that I did that was really statistical. And then I started teaching a Bayesian statistics class. And that's where Think Bayes came from. Yeah, definitely gonna dive into that. But first, what do you do today then? Like, do you still teach this Bayesian stats class? I'm guessing, do you still teach this computer science class? Like, how does this all relate to your previous path? Right, yeah, so I still teach both computer science and data science and Bayesian statistics. I have to admit, Bayesian is probably my favorite class. I think it's the one where you just really change the way people think. You know, the ideas are elegant and in a way that just makes it a pleasure to bring it to a new audience. So that's my favorite. And then I have a blog that's called Probably Overthinking It, where a lot of the examples that I use are Bayesian problems that I've encountered. Sometimes it's like a toy problem, just something fun that I thought about. And other times it's real data from an article 
really trying to make it practical. Like if I'm if I'm running an experiment and I need to analyze the results, you know, what are the Bayesian methods and what does that do for me? I see. Okay. And what is the background of your students in this class? Because I'm guessing it's also uh, something that will be interesting to people who are thinking about reading base, uh, think, uh, think base. So what's the background basically of your students? Well, they're all engineering students, but it's kind of broad. It's not just one kind of engineering. We have students with really diverse interests, but they do all have that technical background. And for the Bayesian class, Python programming is the prerequisite. And so that's true for the book as well. For ThinkBase, I assume that you know basic Python programming. And then we're going to use that because you have that skill. We can use that as leverage to learn the Bayesian stuff. And then there's a bunch of, of uh, SciPy as well. So I use a lot of NumPy and things like that. But that's kind of learn it as you go. So if people have kind of basic or intermediate level Python, they're ready for ThinkBase. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. And I guess I'm interested in, because you've been teaching this class for quite some time now, and I'm curious about the evolution like of the students. Did you notice an uptick in interest for Bayesian statistics? Did it stay the same? Did it decrease? Maybe did the background of the students themselves change? Like, what about the demographics, you know, the social economic evolution of people interested in these methods? Well, it's funny because I'm not sure that the Bayesian revolution has really hit high school students yet. So mostly people coming to college probably haven't heard much about Bayesian stats. And if they've done any statistics, they've probably done like the AP exam, which is a very classical statistics curriculum. So it's actually one of the challenges of teaching Bayes is that a lot of times you have to undo what the students have learned in a classical statistics. They might have seen confidence intervals and maybe they kind of understand what a confidence interval is supposed to mean. And then when, when they learn about Bayesian credible intervals, it takes a while to really believe that they are what they are. That, you know, people who are used to confidence intervals, they're expecting something complicated. And then the elegance of Bayes is that it is simple. There really is a 90% chance that the parameter falls in the 90% credible interval. I mean, I guess that's the pleasant surprise. Now, then you have to be reminded that that's only true to the degree that your model is a good model. So there's no such thing as a free lunch, but at least you're having the right conversation because now you're talking about the model and its strengths and its limitations instead of talking about the interpretation of a, an obscure statistical trick. Yeah, yeah, I completely get what you mean. And... Now, actually, for me, it's the opposite in the sense that I use Bayesian interval so often that now I forgot uh, basically how to interpret the frequentist interval. And each time I have to do that, I have to like really put thoughts into it, you know, like, oh, wait, I know there is this resampling stuff, but what is it about again? I like, And I had to do that the other day because there was an interesting question about that in the Learn Based Stats Slack channel, actually. And, and so I, I dug into that again, but I'm glad I don't have to do that too often. <laughs> uh, and... Okay, now is a good time to ask you about how you personally 
got first introduced to Bayesian stats and why did they stick with you? Because now you're using them all day long, um, you're writing blog posts about them and you're writing books, etc. But how did it start? Like when and where did your interest in these methods start? I think grad school is probably the first time I heard the words. I met somebody at a party who was a consultant who does Bayesian statistics. And I remember asking, you know, what's that? And I got the cocktail party explanation of, of Bayesian statistics. Do you remember what it was or not? I'm curious about that. Well, he was talking about eliciting priors from experts that, you know, experts have in their head this knowledge. And then one of the, one of the things he was doing as a consultant was interviewing them in order to understand how to quantify their knowledge and express it as a prior distribution. And of course, I was shocked coming from a classical statistics because it, it tries so hard to be objective. And then someone comes along and says, oh, yeah, you know, where, where do prior distributions come from? They come from the brains of experts and we elicit them using these interview techniques. And I thought that was shocking. I thought that doesn't, that can't be science. But of course it is. It makes perfect sense to take advantage of the knowledge that we have to represent it quantitatively, and then to update it using data. What else would you do? Yeah, yeah, of course, I agree. But that makes me think that that's another reason why I'm grateful that cocktail parties are gonna be there again in a few months. Now that we are getting all vaccinated, we'll be able to do this kind of stuff. Like now I will be able to say, oh, okay, actually I'm a patient consultant. Maybe future Alan Downies will be at the receiving end of my, you know, answer. I hope so. <laughs> and you talked about that a bit, but what's your fav favorite technical stack when you work on a Bayesian model? Right. Well, I'm coming from Python world. So mostly the SciPy stack, a lot of NumPy for array operations, all of the statistical distributions that come from SciPy. And then the big one, I use Pandas. And I have a library that I wrote that's called empirical dist, which represents empirical distributions, so discrete distributions. And that's really just a wrapper around a pandas series. But I think it turns out to be a really good way to work with these distributions. You get all the benefits of an array and all the benefits of a mapping type. The pandas series has become my go-to data structure for everything. Yeah, I can understand that. They really are uh, quite awesome. And actually, how come you coming from the Python world? Like, was Python already a big thing when you were studying computer science? Kind of. Not when I was studying. I did my first degree and I graduated in 1989. And I believe the first Python was 1991. You might have to fact check me on that. But I, I got into it in 1999. So kind of early. And it came about, I was teaching in Java and I had written a rough draft of a textbook that used Java. And that's the book that eventually became Think Java. And then I got an email from Jeff Elkner, who's a high school teacher in Virginia, and he translated my Java book into Python. So I read that and that's actually how I learned Python. I read my own book. Well, that's a good way of learning it. <laughs> 
And then why did you stay with Python until today? You seem pretty happy with, with it and with your choice, but I'm wondering why. Yeah, well, I mean, I was coming from C and Java. And when you make that jump, it's just, there's no going back. It's just such a readable language. It's, I think, a good language for communicating about programs and communicating about statistics. Whatever you're trying to express, I think writing it in Python, I should say, some other modern programming languages are expressive in the same way. But when I first encountered Python, it really, it's like the XKCD cartoon where you import anti-gravity. There really was a feeling that this language was just a big step up from you know, where I was coming from, which is you know, Java and C. Yeah, okay. I unfortunately can't relate to that because <laughs> I, I don't have the same background, but I hear what you're saying. And yeah, that's not the first time I heard of that. And maybe an, another question before we dive into ThinkBase. How did you learn patient stats from a computational and you know practical point of view? Because you don't seem to be using a blockbuster probabilistic programming language. So how did you do that then? What was your road? Well, I started, I think the first time I really got into it was from David Mackay's book. And I wish I remember where I got it, like who told me about it. But it's a great book. If you haven't seen it, it's more like a brain dump than a book. It's like everything that David Mackay wanted to write about. Uh, it's called Information Theory, Inference, and Learning Algorithms. And the inference part is mostly chapter three, which is, I think, a really nice introduction to the ideas of Bayesian statistics. And in fact, I've got at least two examples that are in Think Bayes that I borrowed from Mackay's book. There's the Euro problem, which is about estimating proportions, and then Oliver's blood, which is kind of a puzzle. It's a counterintuitive result, thinking about interpreting a blood test. But I think it was a great book. And I think for a long time, I didn't read anything else because once you get the idea, you can solve problems. And that's what I found myself doing was just I would either read about a problem or I would notice something in the world and I would think about it as a Bayesian problem. And I started writing articles and examples. And what I found is I didn't, I was able to do it using just Python. I actually didn't get into MCMC and other computational methods until really late, just because I found that there was so much that I could do using simple computational methods. So the first edition of Think Bayes doesn't have any MCMC at all. It's all grid algorithms where you, you, know, you take the continuous world and you break it up into these discrete grids. And then when you do that, now everything is just Bayes' theorem. Yeah, I heard of the theorem. I'm not sure I know it, but I heard of it. And actually, we should put this book in the show notes for listeners if they want to check it out. Yeah, I definitely recommend it. The first couple of chapters are about information theory which is not necessary for Bayesian statistics, but it's also a really good thing to know about. So yeah, and the whole PDF is available free. Oh, awesome. Yeah, even more of a reason to put it in the show notes. Information theories, it's really cool. I love it. And also once you understand it, it you see how it relates to priors and so on. So I think it's really something interesting like to have somewhere to read one day. <laughs> 
And actually, let's talk about ThingBase now, because as I said in the introduction, you just released the second edition of ThinkBase. Before we go into the details, I'm curious about why you wanted to write this book in the first place. Like, who is it written for? And like, not only the, the second edition, but the first edition, you know, like, why did you want to write this book? And who is it written for? Yeah, well, I mean, going back to the first edition, it's almost like a religious conversion where when you learn about these ideas, the first thing that you want to do is teach them to other people because they're so powerful and they just change the way you think. So as I was learning, I wanted to teach it to my students. So that's why I created the classes. And then I also wanted to take advantage of Again, this idea of using programming as a pedagogic lever, that once you know how to program, you can use that skill to learn everything else. And Bayesian stats, it seemed to me, was a perfect example of this. Because if you look at the mathematical treatment, and you could pick up you know, some of the really popular books about Bayesian statistics, you get just a couple of pages in, and the notation is really dense, And you just see a lot of integrals. Everything is expressed in terms of integrals. So, you know, sure, if you like math notation and that works for you, that's great. But I think there are a lot of people where I can show you a computer program that is literally like three lines and show you what a Bayesian update looks like. It's like, here's an array that represents your prior. I'm going to multiply it by this likelihood. And then I'm going to take that result and I'm going to divide through by the total. I'm going to compute the sum and divide through. That's it. That's a Bayesian update. It's three lines of code. And I just, I think that's really powerful way to get started with these ideas. So yeah, that's where that came from. And to you, that's what sets the book apart, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I, th I'm, I didn't invent this. So I, there are some other books that also take, take a similar approach. But what I tried to do with ThinkBase is a really systematic step-by-step -step approach. So like the first chapter, I, and actually this is for the second edition, I added a new first chapter that is just about conditional probability because I think it's a hard idea. It just takes a while for people to get their head around conditional probability. Now, once you do, then you're ready for Bayes' theorem. And I start out with simple examples where there are just two hypotheses. And then three hypotheses and gradually work my way up. And what I found is that at every step, I could pose a new problem that was interesting enough. You know, sometimes it's a toy problem, sometimes it's more realistic. But at each step, I could pose a problem and then use the methods that we have to solve the problem and then often add in the next method, the next tool. And then repeat. So I felt like as I was able to build it up very gradually, but also get pretty far. Like once you get into, you know, chapters five, six, seven, you're solving real problems. It's like, you know, real data, real problems, and the potential for impact where, you know, the solution actually matters. Yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. And I really agree with like the underlying assumption where you wanted to write that because it's actually something I experienced in my studies, I went to a very French way of doing studies after high school, which is called the class préparatoire, which is 
you can translate that to preparatory classes if you want, which is like two years of intense studying where you at the end pass a very competitive exam to enter elite universities. And to do that, I had to study a lot of math and in particular, a lot of probability and statistics. And I remember not liking that part, actually, like, which is very ironic now, knowing what I do for a living. But at that time, it was like 10 years ago, I really didn't like stats and probabilities, or at least I thought I didn't, because we were doing everything with pen and paper. So this has two consequences. First, I didn't understand why we had to do all these calculus when I was pretty sure that a computer could do that more efficiently and more reliably than me. And second, it was limiting what we could do, what we could tackle as problems, like always very kind of boring problems, very, as you said, not real life problems. And so I wasn't able to see the, the interest of that. Whereas if I had been taught statistics with a computer and just, as you said, being able to sample from a distribution, see, oh, okay, the samples have this shape, you know, when you draw from a normal distribution or from a student T or anything else, okay, I, I can see it. Like you're really creating something, like you're creating a statistical world, if you want, and you can really see that with your eyes and understand the practicality of the methods you're dealing with. I mean, this would have probably helped me gain some time and understand what I wanted to do in my life earlier than what I ended up doing. But yeah, so I think this is great. I really love this kind of thinking and teaching. Yeah. Yeah, I think your experience sounds familiar. I do the same thing. And it's frustrating because right now it happens by accident. If you happen to learn how to program, then you start using that as your way of understanding things. And as you say, you make them concrete, you make them visible, but we don't see a lot of that, certainly not at the you know, secondary level of education, not at the college level, because it's still the case that most people can't program. So it doesn't do much good you know, if I say, hey, look, if you know how to program, I can teach you Bayesian statistics. And someone comes back and says, well, I don't know how to program. You know, right now, all I can say is, well, then I can't help you. <laughs> yeah, I can really see that. But imagine if people started to learn programming much earlier in their education. And people do this, you know, there is age-appropriate material that you can do in elementary school. You can certainly do it at the secondary level. So I think the more people who get at least some exposure to that, you know, not because everybody's going to be a software engineer, but because it's a thinking tool and a learning tool. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't agree more with what you just said. And same for me. Like, I mean, that's also why I wasn't taught statistics with a computer. It's because I couldn't program. <laughs> I had to learn that and then learn about stats from a computational point of view. But yeah, I completely understand. And, and just learning to program also helped me unlock a kind of thinking a way of thinking that helps me in many other aspects of my life, you know, like just the, like it demystifies mistakes I found. Like for me, the main thing was, yeah, but 
you don't know if that's going to work, but just try it. It's not like the computer is not going to die. You're not going to die. Nobody's going to, you know, shame you in the street. Just try it. You have an idea. Okay, write it down. Try it. If it doesn't work, you have an error message that helps you understand why it doesn't work. And then you improve. And that's actually how you improve. And the best way and the fastest way to improve is to do that, like incremental thinking, incremental trials. That's something I got a lot from programming. And I mean, that's important, not only when you are a computer scientist, that's important in a lot of aspects of, of life, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned you know, incremental testing and I think debugging, all of the skills that are wrapped up in debugging. Yeah, you apply that to everything. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to dive in, into the second edition now. So can you tell us what's new in, in the second edition, actually? Sure. Well, you know, it was almost 10 years between the two editions. And during that time, I was teaching and I was learning a ton. So I had a lot of material that I wanted to stuff into the second edition. I actually had to kind of calm down a little bit, but it was a lot of fun working on it. I ended up, I actually, I rewrote all of the code. The first edition was just uh, core Python data structures. I didn't use any NumPy, SciPy stuff. And so the second edition, I switched. And that's a huge difference. It's, it's, the code is you know, smaller and more readable and it runs faster. It's just better in every way. So that's one of the things that changed. The biggest thing that I changed is I wrote the whole book in Jupyter Notebooks. And that's different. What I've usually done in the past is I've had the code in one place and then I wrote the book in LaTeX. And so I was constantly copying things back and forth, which from a software engineering point of view is terrible. <laughs> And now having everything in the Jupyter Notebook, I'm constantly testing. So I think there will probably be fewer errors in the printed book just because it's a more robust testing environment. But even more, now a reader can open up those notebooks and they can, they can read all the text, they can run all the code, they can make changes and try out little experiments. And there's space to work on exercises as well. So I think the notebooks are going to be a really good resource. And they run on Colab. So if you want to download the notebook, you can run it in your own environment, but you can also run it on Google Colab. And that just runs in a browser. You don't have to install anything. So yeah, the notebooks, I think, are going to be great. And then I added, there's a, a lot of new content as well. Yeah. And like we're going to dive a bit into, into the content of the new edition in a moment, and you actually have a, a useful blog post for people where you detail what's changed in uh, the second edition, and this blog post is in the show notes, so listeners, you can refer to that. But yeah, maybe we already talked a bit about that, but maybe let me ask you the question formally, <laughs> because you yourself write that base is an introduction to Bayesian stats using computational methods. So what does this mean? Concretely. Sure. Well, mostly it means not the mathematical approach. There's actually very little math in the book. I have a few formulas, you know, Bayes' theorem is one of the formulas. But other than that, I'm expressing the idea using code rather than using math notation. So that's part of it, which is how I communicate. But then the other part is the methods themselves. So if you work mathematically, you would probably start with using conjugate priors 
which makes it possible to compute the posterior distribution analytically, which is great when it works, but it's really limited. There's a small number of problems that you can solve like that. And if that's where you start, I think it's difficult to really understand what you're doing. And on the flip side, I think I said this before, but when you're using these grid algorithms, I think that's the most natural way to express the problem. And so I think as clear as it can be what you're really doing when you do a Bayesian update. So that's where I start with grid algorithms. And then the other piece, when, when people talk about computational Bayesian statistics, they're usually talking about MCMC, so Markov chain Monte Carlo methods. And for big problems, especially if you have a lot of parameters, MCMC is like the, almost the only option. But it's a little hard to get started with. There are some practical things that are difficult, like just getting the sampling process to work properly and debugging the issues that come up. And conceptually, I think it's just a, it takes a little while to get your head around it. So the way I did it in the book now is I introduce grid algorithms and I take them as far as they can go. And then I deliberately go one step too far, which is I try a problem that has eight parameters in it. And with a grid algorithm, you just, you can't do that. You're up against the problem of dimensionality. And so that's where I can show the killer application for MCMC. It's like, look here, we couldn't solve this problem with a grid algorithm. Here's how we solved it with MCMC. And so there's a natural motivation for the solution and a successful conclusion. I love that. And okay, let's dive into a, a first type of models that I didn't cover actually on this podcast yet. And I find those super interesting. They are called mark and recapture models, and you have a chapter dedicated to them. So can you walk us through this kind of model? Yes. Yeah, this was a fun chapter to work on. So the idea of mark and recapture, it actually comes from ecology. And it's an experiment. If you want to know how many animals there are in a particular environment, one of the ways to do that, you can estimate it. If you put out a trap of some kind and you capture some number of animals and you mark them, like literally put a tag on them and then set them loose again. And then you come back later and you do you do the same thing. You trap a bunch of animals and you check to see how many of them are already marked. So one of the data sets in the book comes from counting grizzly bears in Canada. And this is exactly what they did. They collected DNA from 19 bears the first time that they went and they visited the site. And then they came back and I think they got you know another 19 or maybe 20. And they found that three of them were bears that they had seen before. And the rest of them, 16, were new. And from that, just from those two pieces of data, you can get a sense of how many bears there are in that environment. Like if it was exactly the same 20 bears both times, you would think, okay, there probably aren't very many bears. And if they were totally disjoint sets, if it was a new set of 20 with no overlap at all, you would think, okay, there must be a lot of bears. And so looking at that overlap, you can do a Bayesian estimate. Now, on the face of it, that sounds like a hard statistics problem. Like right off the bat, I'm not sure how I would estimate the number of bears. But I think it's one of these examples where the Bayesian method turns out to be remarkably simple. Once you think in terms of 
what's the probability of seeing the data if you tell me how many bears there are? If I told you that there are 200 bears and then I gave you that data, you could compute the probability. It's a little tricky. It uses the hypergeometric distribution. And if you haven't seen that before, you'd say, oh, okay, that was cool. But it's not super hard. And that's enough. Once you can do that, you can solve the problem. So I just, I think it's a really elegant solution to an interesting problem. And it turns out to be not just ecology. So one of the examples comes from debugging software. I got this from John Cook, who writes a really great blog also about Bayesian things very often. And he talked about the Lincoln Index, which is a statistical solution to this same problem. Uh, and that's you know the context of if you have two people who are testing the same software and one of them finds 20 bugs and the other one finds 20 bugs and three of the bugs are the same that they have in common, it's almost the same problem. And it comes up in epidemiology as well. If you want to know how many people have a particular disease and you have you know, one list that was collected by one hospital and another list that was collected by a clinic that's in the same area, and the two lists overlap, but not completely, it's the same problem again. You're trying to estimate how many people are out there that we didn't see based on the sample that we saw. Yeah, I love that. I really love them. And wondering, maybe you have the answer to that question. How is that related to hidden Markov models? Because I know hidden Markov models are used precisely like to estimate, for instance, the population of sharks based on the sharks you observed in the sea, if I remember correctly, for instance. So I'm wondering, like, is there a link between these kind of models or it's just something I'm mixing up without knowing? Right. I don't know. So when I think of hidden Markov models, I'm mostly thinking about a system that has states and state transitions. And you're seeing the output and the output depends on what state you're in. And you're trying to infer what state the system was in based on the data that you saw. Now, I think you could do that with a population model, especially if the population was changing over time, then that might be how you would use a hidden Markov model there. But to be honest, I'm not sure. That's like that's one use of, of hidden Markov models that I'm familiar with. So it's not obvious to me how to use it for the population problem, but that might just because I'm missing it. Okay, yeah, same for me. But I know that they are using statistical ecology to do stuff like that. And for instance, understand the movements of animals, the migration of animals, like for instance, a, a shark that you saw somewhere and then you see it somewhere else. And so you're using a hidden markup model to relate all of that. And we actually talked about that in episode 14, if I remember correctly, with uh, Vianney Leos Barajas. So if people want to refer to that episode, I should probably listen to it again, actually, now that I think about it. <laughs> but yeah, we talked exactly about that, the work that Vianney is doing in statistical ecology and trying to infer populations of sharks and so on. So yeah, it was a fascinating episode. I'll check that out. Maybe that will be an example in my third edition. <laughs> yeah. And actually, this is a scoop. I'm going to uh, record a matchmaking dinner episode between Vianney and Christopher Fonsbeck, the BDFL of PyMC. And they both worked or work in statistical ecology. So I should probably ask them during the matchmaking dinner, like, 
Is there a relation between Mark and recapture models and hidden Markov models, or am I totally inventing that out of thin air? <laughs> I will ask him that. Well, if there are two people in the world who can answer that question, I think you've got them. So I'll look forward to finding the answer. I should say, Chris was very helpful to me working on some of the examples where I use PyMC. He was really generous with his time and knowledge, so I'm sure he'll have good answers for your questions as well. Yeah, Chris is really awesome in a lot of respects, so <laughs> not only for inventing PyMC, <laughs> but also for it. <laughs> and okay, let's talk about ABC now, not the first letters of the alphabet, but approximate Bayesian computation, which you dedicate a chapter two also in the second edition. Again, I didn't talk about that much on the podcast yet. So can you tell us more about that, about ABC, about its usefulness, its strengths, its weaknesses? Yeah, it turned out to be an interesting chapter. It's the last chapter, and maybe for good reason, which is it's kind of the last resort of Bayesian statistics. I mentioned conjugate priors earlier. And if you're working on a problem that has a conjugate prior, that's probably your best choice. You should just do that. And in my opinion, if you can make the grid algorithms work, I think that's a pretty good second stop. But as I mentioned earlier, you know that will only get you so far. And at some point, you probably need MCMC. Now, MCMC is really powerful, especially as the number of parameters starts to go up. But you do need a model of the system that you can express with well-behaved distributions. And as the model gets complicated, it can be difficult to translate it into a probabilistic model. And it can sometimes be hard to get that model to work well. Debugging with MCMC is challenging. The nice thing about ABC is that all you need to do is run the system forward in time. Meaning if I tell you the parameters, you can simulate the system somehow and generate the outputs. You can simulate the data. And if you can do that, then you'll be able to use ABC. Kind of, here's the only thing you have to do. You sample from the prior to get some parameters. You run the simulation. And then you compare the simulation results to the actual data that you observed. And if you see that they are very similar to each other, then you would say, oh, okay, so those parameters are a likely explanation for the data that I saw. And if the result from the simulation is totally different from your data, then you would say, okay, those parameters are probably out. Those parameters are very unlikely to produce what I saw. And now you just have to repeat that many, many times. <laughs> so... Yeah, which is like, just to repeat that. <laughs> so this is, that's the, the biggest drawback is that it's computationally ridiculously expensive, like even compared to MCMC, which is already pretty expensive. So there, a lot of times you have to do a lot of tricks in order to make it practical. But the nice thing about it is that it can work with an arbitrarily complicated model of the system. So particularly in the natural sciences, this is super useful because you might have a big computational model that simulates your system. And from the Bayesian point of view, it's just a big black box, but you can wrap ABC around your big black box and use it to get estimates. 
So it, it comes up in the natural sciences. For some reason, astronomy seems to be in the lead on this. They seem to use Bayesian methods in general more than other sciences, and especially ABC, because they're often working with complicated computational physical models. And I think, I should double check this, but I think the picture that we saw of a black hole from a couple of years ago, I think that comes from ABC, that that was the method that they used to infer what a black hole would look like if it produced the data that we saw. Oh, that would be quite cool. Yeah, actually, um, Osvaldo Martin, who is a um, PyMC developer and was there for the very first episode of Learn Based Stats in September 2019. He works on these kinds of methods, ABC methods, and he he's adding uh, when he can, he's adding some functionalities for that on, on PyMC3. Uh, so for people interested in that, I encourage them to check that out. And if they want to help Osvaldo with that, uh, I guess he'll welcome any PRs. That's good to know. I'll check that out. Yeah, yeah. There will actually be a chapter two about approximate inference, basically on his coming book with uh, Ravin Kumar and Jun Penglao. So yeah, let's all keep an eye out for that. Yes, I'm looking forward to that book. I had a chance to read some of the preliminary chapters and it looks really good. So I'm excited. Yeah, yeah, me too. Definitely. Spoiler there will going to be a special episode on the Learn Based That podcast about that, I think. We'll see, but I'm thinking. Now I'd like to zoom out a bit from statistical nitty-gritty, but I'm wondering from your experience teaching the first edition, what were the most common mistakes or difficulties that your students had? Yeah, good question. One of them, and I mentioned, conditional probability is just hard. It seems to defy our intuition for probability. I mean, we have heuristics that are pretty good most of the time. And then something like the Monty Hall problem comes along and you realize, wow, this is really hard. One of my other favorite examples is the girl named Florida problem. And in my opinion, that makes the Monty Hall problem look easy. <laughs> yeah, talk about this problem, actually. I think it's, in, it's interesting if you want. I think I probably can't do it justice but it's another example where this idea of conditional probability just does not behave the way your intuition thinks it's supposed to. And in some ways, the solution is not to explain it more. The solution is that you have to figure out when can I trust my intuition and when do I have to ignore my intuition and do the math? So I think that's part of it. And that might be the first hurdle. The second hurdle can be the computational piece or the math piece. I think it's just the, the notation. And part of it with Bayes is there's always this back and forth between the forward problem and the inverse problem. You have to simultaneously think about when you go in the forward direction, you tell me the parameters and I generate the data. But I have to think of that as being a probabilistic process, which means that I could have seen different data, not just the data I saw, and then that's what motivates the inverse problem, which is now, given the data that I saw, what can I infer about the parameters? And again, I just I think it takes a while for people to get comfortable with going back and forth between those two modes. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And this was something I actually troubled with when I first started learning Bayesian statistics. You're like, the prior, okay, 
I got the posterior. Okay, I got it's like you plug that into the base formula, basically likelihood, same thing. But then you have to understand prior predictive samples and posterior predictive samples, and like wait, <laughs> how is the posterior different from the posterior predictive? And I was like, for for a while, I was like. Okay, they are supposed to be different, but I don't understand why yet. And at one point, that clicked, you know, like with enough, you know, exposition to the difference between the two and different ways of explaining and being aware of the problem, it clicked at one point. But yeah, it was definitely something weird to understand at first. Yeah, you're right. The predictive distributions, that is another level of challenge. And you know what? I think part of the difficulty is that everything begins with P. And this it comes from, if you write a book, if you write fiction, they'll tell you, try not to have two characters where the name begins with the same letter. Because when people are reading quickly, they just look at the first letter. They don't look at the whole name. But then you get to like uh, the Game of Thrones where all the characters, you know. Oh, yeah. Everyone in the same family. Oh, my God, yeah. All the Lannisters begin with T and all of the uh, Targaryens begin with A. <laughs> So that's that's bad. But we have the worst version of this because we have the prior probability, the posterior probability, the prior predictive, the posterior predictive. Everything's P. And if you look at the notation too, the math is all P's as well. I was looking at one of these textbooks and page one is, here's your guideline to the notation. And it's 20 different versions of P parenthesis theta, except sometimes it's a capital P or a lowercase p or an italicized P or a bold P. That's <laughs> terrible. Yeah, that's quite terrible, yeah. But I mean, if you open that box of statistical naming of things, we have to redo everything. <laughs> I mean, just like something that's often super hard for people to understand is like, why is the centered or the non-centered parameterization called like that. <laughs> it's like it's so confusing. At one point, you don't pay attention to that because you're used to it. But like for beginners, it's usually super hard. Why is it called non-center? It's very bad name. Yes, I learned that recently. And you're absolutely right. The word centered just does not mean a thing in that context. Yeah, well, or it does, but you have to know a lot of intricacies and details of statistics and so on. So, I mean, it's not a good name for beginners, at least. It's not something when you hear it, you have an intuition of what it means. And actually, regression is the same way. Oh, yeah. That, uh, that used to mean something, and now it just yeah. hardly connects at all. Yeah, yeah, true. And before asking you my next question, this conversation reminds me of something that actually appeared in the discussion I was talking about in the LBS Slack channel about the, the difference between frequentist and Bayesian confidence intervals. And I had this discussion with Adrian Zabolt, who is a PyMC developer too, and he pointed out to me that it actually comes down to a quirk in human reasoning that you were referring before, actually, I think like at the, the very beginning of your answer to my question, and that there are tons of examples where people assume that P of A knowing B equals P of B of B knowing A. You know, when you were saying that conditional probabilities are hard. And basically we like, we tend to like to think that probability of the probability of the hypothesis knowing the evidence is equal to the probability of the evidence knowing the hypothesis. And they are usually really, really not the same. But if you are not going careful, 
we confuse them. And even if you're a statistician, like your automatic brain will, conf will confuse both. You know, you have to pay attention to it, not to get, not to fall into the trap. And I find this problem so fascinating, like this bias is so fascinating to me. And it's actually something that's called the, like usually called the prosecutor's fallacy. And I love that. I will put that in the show notes. There is a Wikipedia article about that super interesting and also very fun read, a paper about the difference between Bayesian and frequentist confidence intervals by E.T. Jaynes. So quite old, but very fun to read. Yeah, I advise people to look at it because it's a good read. So again, I'll put that in the show notes. Detour, but I had to mention that because like I completely agree. Conditional probabilities, very hard. Like on paper, you think they are easy. Oh yeah, it's just A knowing B, blah, blah, blah. But actually wrapping your mind around that and developing intuition about them, quite hard. Okay, maybe my couple of last questions before call it a show because don't want to take too much of your time. I'm wondering, at the end of the day, what are the essential skills you try to instill in your students with the book, with the course? What would you say they are? I think part of it is the practical skills of solving these problems. And so if students encounter these problems in the future, I hope that they'll have this toolkit on their belt. And especially because it's still relatively rare, I think they might blow the doors off of something where people are stuck because they're taking a more traditional approach and maybe a Bayesian approach just solves the problem. So I hope that's part of it. I think part of it is working with open-ended problems that there's a lot of work you have to do to figure out what the problem is in the first place and to think about what the model is for the system, or often more than one model. And you have to think about how complicated it has to be, what can I leave out, what do I have to include? And then maybe the third piece is really thinking. I think when you really understand Bayes' theorem, it changes the way you think about uncertainty. And you look around the world, you interpret things in that way. You know, people talk about Bayesian thinking as a model for rational behavior. You know, what should you believe given uncertainty and given data? What is the reasonable thing to believe? I was thinking about Super Forecasters, which is it's a book that follows people who are really good at this kind of thinking. And a lot of what they do is not exactly Bayes' theorem, writing down probabilities and doing computations but what I would call Bayesian thinking. What's my prior? How likely is this prediction before I see the data? And then how should I revise it as I get more and more data? So I think actually, uh, maybe we'll add this to the list of resources, but I think Super Forecasters is a good one to look at. Oh yeah, super, super good book. I love it. So yeah, by Phil Tetlock and, and Dan Gardner, I already added that to the show notes. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Yeah, basically something that comes up often, which is like trying to think generatively about your model and data. That's something super valuable. Okay, and yeah, talking about resources, which other resources do you think listeners should focus on once they read ThinkBase? Let's see. Well, I mentioned Mackay's book already, David Mackay, and that's Information Theory, Inference, and Learning Algorithms. And again, I think his chapter three is what sold me on Bayesian statistics. Rethinking Statistics, which is McElwraith's book, I think that's how it's pronounced, 
I think it's a really good introduction to Bayesian thinking and modeling. And especially in the context of the social sciences, I think that's a good one. I like Krushke's book, which I think is Doing Bayesian Statistics. That's the one with the dogs on the cover. I like that one in part because his approach is similar to mine, where he uses both grid algorithms and MCMC, but he interleaves them. So he'll solve the same problem both ways, side by side, which I think is really good. That book uses R. So if you're an R person and you're sick of all this Python, that might be a good option. And then Cameron Davidson Pilon has a book that's called uh, Bayesian Methods for Hackers. And I should say, actually, all of these are available online. Well, not Krushke's book, but all of the others are available in free versions online, including Cameron's book. He uses a lot of PyMC. So I think that's actually a good next stop after Think Bayes, except you're going to see a couple of problems that are familiar because I borrowed a couple of examples from Cameron's book. Well, that's also good. Pedagogy requires understanding, requires repetition. Great resources, definitely need to add that to the show notes for listeners. Before I ask you the two questions, one last question that I like to ask to anybody who wrote a book and also because I am writing one and I am like a bit curious about your answer. What was the main challenge you encountered while writing the book? What was the main pain point for you? To be honest, I know I'm not supposed to say this because people always talk about how difficult it is to write books. And it is. But I think this one went surprisingly smoothly, partly because I had a pretty good idea what I wanted to do. I had been teaching it. I had a lot of resources. So mostly it was just a relief to finally get things down on paper that had been in my head. It was not a super painful process. I'm sorry to disappoint you. <laughs> yeah, I'm both disappointed and jealous. So how much time did it take you from beginning to end? Right. It's a little hard to say because I'm always working on multiple projects. Yeah, but I think anybody writing a book is. Yeah, sure. I think I started last summer and it's coming out this summer. So just about one calendar year. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah. Uh, as you say, yeah, it's like the result of the reflection of all the teaching and work that, that you do. So, I mean, we could also say that you're basically always writing your book in, in a way. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay. Awesome. Before letting you go, and I encourage listeners to stick around at the end of the episode because we have... Alan and I have a surprise for you. So, but before that, I'm going to ask you the two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. First one is if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? Well, climate change seems like it might be a problem. <laughs> <laughs> I heard about that. Yeah. I mean, if you look at statistics and you follow people like Our World in Data, there are so many things in the world that are actually going well and getting better over time. And obviously, you know, the last year with COVID, a lot of the long-term trends have been going the wrong way. But on the whole, I'm really optimistic about the world with one exception, which is that we have a serious problem with climate change. I think it is solvable, so I'm still an optimist. I think that there's a path from right now to the end of the 21st century where we have a good quality environment and a good quality of life for everybody on the planet. And so that's what I want to work on. Yeah, that's worth it. A lot of people answered that already. So you are in good company. You guys can make your dream team and 
tackle that. Second question, if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive, or fictional, who would it be? So this one was hard because a lot of the scientists that I know about are great scientists, but not the people that I want to have dinner with <laughs> for all kinds of reasons. <laughs> one that I thought of, I've always admired Isaac Asimov, and I read a ton of his stuff, both the fiction and the nonfiction when I was young, no longer with us, unfortunately, but I think that would be my first choice. Now, I have a feeling that if I do more research, maybe I will be disappointed to learn that he wasn't a great dinner companion, but for now, I'm going to assume that he was. Yeah, great answer. This time, you are the first one to answer that. What else have you heard? Who are the top 10? Oh, that's actually a good question. I should compile, like, I don't know, for a special episode of Learn Based Stats, I don't know, the 100th, you know, or something like that. Or maybe the 95. <laughs> It's a famous number instead. I should compile all the answers and see the distribution, look at the distribution. Because it's actually all the interest of this question. I'm really interested in the distribution of answers. So I will do that. Did anybody say Thomas Bayes? I don't think anybody said Thomas Bayes. I think Aki Vetteri said Laplace. I picked Condorcet. And I know Richard Feynman is often a choice as is, I think, Charles Darwin. And yeah, and you also have... Those were all runners up. Yeah, Alan Turing also. It's not among the most popular, but recently has been chosen. So yeah, that's a great question. I'm definitely going to do this stacking of the distribution. Well, thanks a lot, Alan. It was so fun diving into ThinkBase with you, going through the lessons and the feedback you got from the first edition and yeah, just talking about your writing process. I love that. I'm sure a lot of listeners can't wait to dive into your book now. And actually, this is the surprise I was talking about. If you listeners want to get this book for free, you can go to the link, the form that I gave you in the introduction to the show, and that will be in the show note too. And there you submit your email address. And after, I don't know, a week or so, Alan and I uh, will choose five winners at random. Don't worry. And these winners will receive the book for free. And even if you don't win, well, you win since uh, there will be a discount uh, for everyone with a promo code that Again, I will put in the show notes and that was in the introduction to the show. And that way you can go and buy the book with discount rate and this promo code. As usual, I put all these resources and a link to Alan's website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. Thank you again, Alan, for taking the time for being on this show and for being kind enough to organize this contest and allow people to win the book. You're welcome. And thank you. It's been a lot of fun. And uh, it was just great to meet you and to uh, have a chance to talk. Yeah, you bet. Anytime. And in 10 years, when you come up with ThinkBay 3, you can come back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks, Alan. See you. This has been another episode of Earning Patient Statistics. 
Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher or on Podchaser, and visit learnbasedstats.com for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true page instead of mine. That's learnbasedstats.com. Our theme music is Good Bayesian by Baba Brinkman, with MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Endora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Endora, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a... Good Bayesian, change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation.